Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. My guest today is Melinda Inman. She is a self-described prodigal with a passion to write. She authors fiction illustrating God's love for wounded people making beauty of ashes. She also works with women in church and in prison ministry contexts. She writes inspirational material and Bible studies. And she's the mother of six children, one of whom I'm married to. Yes, Melinda is my mother-in-law. She was here visiting, so we talked a little bit about her newest novel, No Longer Alone, as well as her two previous novels, and we talked about the story that shaped her as a storyteller. We had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you my mother-in-law, Melinda Inman. Melinda Inman, my mother-in-law, welcome to the podcast. Oh, I'm glad to be here. It's really fun to be in here with you talking in the in the recording studio. Yeah, it's actually rare. There's actually not a lot of people that, I mean, Bill bore regularly, but other than Bill, it's very, it's a rare guest. Lillian, my, our, <laughs> your granddaughter, my niece, has, yeah. has sat in this chair before. So you are here visiting for the weekend. You leave tomorrow back mm-hmm. to Michigan. Mm-hmm. I do. It's really a privilege to be here in the in the sound booth. It's pretty amazing in here. It's uh, it's something. It's dark. It's very yes, dark. Very dark. <laughs> Although I bought lots of lamps, and he was yeah. like, "Do you want do you want warm lighting or full daytime?" I said, "Full daytime." <laughs> and maybe I don't know. I'm getting used to it though. Yeah, it's it's it, there's no echo whatsoever. So the sound here is really different. Just, this this is the per- the reason for all the foam, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily. Beautiful, but it's, it's working. It's quite effective. Mm-hmm. Now, you just had a novel published this year, third. Yes. No Longer Alone. Yes, indeed. Based on a true story. And I want to ask you about it. But first, can I ask you just a little bit about your story? So you are a grandmother. Yes. A mother of many, <laughs> yes. including my lovely wife. And so how did how did you... you that, can you... This actually... Uh, no longer alone is based on some of your own family backstory, like you know your parents' parents, right? Right. My my right. mother's grandparents. Yeah, your mother's grandparents. Mm-hmm. So, how did Melinda Emin, uh, as you married young, and you've again been a mother of several children and had a pretty interesting life experience? Could you just tell a little bit about your own story and how your story has shaped you into a teller of stories? Oh, that okay, great. How much time do I have? Get all the time in the world. <laughs> we have no, we have no commercial so breaks. We have the short version, the longer version. Um, I was born to my parents when they lived in Waukee, Oklahoma, and grew up there until I was oh seven when we moved away. But we came back every year, many times, and my family lived there. I think the last family member to no longer live there moved away from a nearby town, Anthony, not that long ago. So my roots are definitely all over in Waukee, Oklahoma, which is where Twister was filmed. And Great film. My father lived in the boarding house when he was dating my mother, the boarding house, which was the aunt's house in the movie that they destroyed in the movie. That's where my father lived when he was courting my mother. So... Um, Grew up there, best place in the world to grow up. Uh, the people of Waukeda are so supportive, so kind, and the United Methodist Church there was an important part of my life. 
And there's a beautiful picture of Jesus in the front holding the children on his lap, and that really shaped my life, as did my grandparents and my family. A family of storytellers. Everything was a story, and they were verbal storytellers, so it was, you know, they knew exactly the perfect timing to get the roar of laughter at the end or or whatever the reaction was. And so growing up in a family like that where um, you have that sort of – stuff going on. And then me being very inquisitive, my mother taught me to read when I was three. And I was a reader, and I loved listening to stories. And I, um, my great-grandmother, Avery, who is in the book I, and no longer alone, um, was part of my life when I was a child. And I was listening to the things she would say about um, my great-grandfather, who was no longer alive at that time. And I could tell that they had a really unique relationship. We were... Um, riding up a dirt road. My mother was driving in this great big boat of of a car. And we went sailing over this wooden bridge. And as we did, my one great-grandmother was on my left and one was on my right. And my great-grandmother, Stuart, said, isn't this where you and Prentice parked your buggy? And I thought, what's that mean? And I looked over at my other great-grandmother and she was saying, yeah, he was a really, he was a really good kisser when we were, would park the buggy. And I thought, what? So instead of making out in the car, you're making out in a buggy. In the buggy, the buggy. You park the horse and buggy on the wooden bridge. And that story stuck with me. It's part of my novel. And it, I just thought, I mean, it was really impressed upon me that all the people who were older than me had these really interesting stories. My great-grandmother told about riding in the covered wagon during the land run when she was very small. And um, I knew I had Native American ancestry and just very interesting family on both sides, actually, with different stories of of horse and buggies and covered wagons. And and so this novel is is based on that. Um, we moved away. We came back a lot. Um why did you move? Like, what were the... my Well, like, this is like the story of most small towns, especially out on the prairie and the farm community. Um, if you have a bunch of uh, really bright, inquisitive children, they're going to go away and go to college. They're going to go on to master's degrees. They're not going to be able to all live in that same small town. So um, there's lots of textbook authors and teachers and professors. And um, my father was a librarian. My mother and father moved away so he could finish his degree and she could do her degree and then they could go on and do great things, which they did. And that's what happened in all of our, all the families, all the siblings, all the cousins. So uh, as time went by, the only people remaining in the town were the great grandparents and the grandparents. And then everyone came back to Waukita for all the holidays. So we were there at least three times a year, sometimes more. And then, of course, when those people pass away, um, you don't have them anymore. And now none of my um, ancestors are living there, but everyone's buried in the same cemetery. They're south of town, at least the part of the closest part of my family. Um, So my parents went away to get an education. Um, We moved a few times in a row so that they could finish their um, bachelor's degrees and my father, his master's degree. Then we ended up in Colorado. And then from there, we moved to Kansas. And there was this really cute boy there <laughs> <laughs> that he that I met at, at that time in my life. And in all of our moves, some things have been really difficult. I had been... Um, sexually assaulted at a young age, hadn't told a soul. Nobody talked about that sort of thing. 
And so I ro- arrived in Kansas, sort of a um, a broken girl. How did you t- fit? I mean, what's the processing of an event like that? When was you just felt like there was no one you could tell, or or nobody? Nobody talked about that then. So it wasn't like um, like now all the time we tell young women and young boys. Tell someone that you can trust, talk to the school counselor, tell your mother, tell tell your father. You know, we, we, we say that. No one talked about it. So there wasn't how, any— How old were you at that point? I was 13. Oh, wow. So, it's, so you're, yeah, you're right. I didn't— years, I mean. Yeah. I couldn't even articulate what had happened to me. So it was like I thought I was now a bad person. And so because that had happened, I felt I felt dirty and I felt like I was a bad person. It's like what Brene Brown says, right? Like shame, like everybody has it. And the less you talk about it, the more of it you have. Yeah. 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 And so I had no context for talking about it. And so I just stuffed it down. And um, just I, for the next few years, I don't remember even thinking about it or even being aware of it as having any part of my life. But yet it was this driving force in my life. And um, do you think you, you, consciously were able to suppress it i mean or or unconscious i mean to survive so you were able to really suppress it (laughs) i suppressed it quite a bit yeah um so i didn't realize why all of a sudden i couldn't say no and i did never had never been kissed until my husband the man who's now my husband who was then the cute 16 year old boy till he had till he kissed me so it was my first kiss and he was a healthy young man <laughs> from a, a you know a different kind of family. Grew up in a military family, and uh, he told all the boys he was sitting on a porch across the street from where we moved in, and he told all the boys he there, "I'm going to marry that girl." I mean, wow. all, all he'd done was see me walk out the door. I think I told him that was kind of pres- presumptuous to assume that. <laughs> But he did pursue me, and it was like I was overpowered by him. I felt just, whoa, I fell for him, and I didn't know why I couldn't just push him away. There were all sorts of boundaries being crossed, so I broke up with him, and that I thought, I'll be, that'll be safe. And so just basically, you're, you're, you're uh, sexually aroused teenagers, and you felt like, hey— yeah, this is too. We're crossing lines process. here. Wait, wait. I'm right. supposed to do this. I'm a Christian girl. Um, when I, back step a little bit, I became a believer in Christ six weeks before I was assaulted. So it was really boom, boom. And so I had no. Listen, okay. So for people, I, I'm trying to think of different sort of religious contexts. So you would say that the Methodist Church was an important part of your growing up. You remember this picture of yeah. Jesus, you're yeah. wonderful, warm people. Yes. And yet you, you had a conversion experience subsequent to being raised in this church context. Like something cha- What changed what, in the experience? What changed was, um, well, first off, growing up in a church like that, I was very aware of how much God loved me. That was a constant. And very also very aware, given the United Methodist tradition, of how much we need to help other people. So we were that kind of a family. We visited the nursing home and we went for, for a crop walk and did all those things. And then um, my parents helped organize in the church something called a lay witness mission, which was a thing in the 1970s. I don't even know if they do it anymore. But it was where a group of lay people 
would come and basically have a weekend where they presented the gospel, because um, at that time in the United Methodist Church, you might not hear the gospel necessarily from the pulpit. You would usually hear um, something warm and touching and, and you know, inspirational, but you, but you might not hear the fact that um, Jesus had actually died for you and that you could become a, a you could believe in him and ask for forgiveness of sins and he would for, forgive them and you would have a lifelong relationship with well, any a longer than life relationship with him and i remember going to that event which i helped organize thinking i was one of the good little christian kids organizing the event and then realizing at the event that i had never dealt with the fact that i was a sinner that I had sin in my life, and I'm obviously, I'm 13, so it's the sort of thing like, you know, being sassy to my parents or being mean to my little sister or um, that sort of thing, but yet I was really convicted by the fact that I was a sinner, and so I had repented. I told Jesus how sorry I was and asked Him to come into my life and to be my Savior, and it was... um, my my mother and father thought I already was a Christian. I'd gone forward and been baptized once because I just I thought they may, they may, maybe because this is the era of the sound of music that I had to become a nun to be saved. So I wasn't quite sure what was involved. Wow! <laughs> so I heard like the gospel for the for the first time really clearly in a way that I understood it. I, I'm sure I'd been hearing it my whole life. Would your parents have said that they had told you that story before? Oh, I'm it, sure. Yeah. I mean, because this was not. An instance where no, they were the, where the concepts or the experience was foreign to them. No, no, I, I'm sure I heard the gospel many more times, but for some reason I it just clicked. Heard it. it and it clicked when I was ten. Uh, I asked my mother after church. I said, "If I go up there and pray, do I have? To, will they cut off all my hair?" And she was like, "What?" <laughs> and I think we, I mean, we'd been to the Sound of Music, like it, you know, it came out a couple of years before, and all the movies back then that showed Christian people were generally Catholic scenarios. And she told me no. And the next year I went up and I prayed. And but yeah, I don't remember any really anything changing or me even I I mean, I remember that very same year calling my mother a bad name and really really being in trouble for that. So <laughs> I guess she still remembers that. She, yeah. Yeah. So at thirteen there was something different in that I was aware that I was a sinner. I don't think I would have said I was until I was thirteen. And then it's like, oh wait, I have sin in my life. And um I love Jesus. I'd always loved Jesus. So it was like a pretty, it was, it was an easy, like, oh, I repent. Yes, I want Jesus. Yes. <laughs> and then six weeks later is when this assault happened. So I was sort of stumbling into baby Christian faith. You know, I'm in middle school. I'm meeting with other kids. We're reading our Bibles. We're sharing the gospel at school. Um, we're really passionate about the fact that we loved Jesus, we had loved our fellow students, and then this happened. And then as a result of that, I became like my heart gradually drifted cold. And it was very gradual. Um, like, Do you mean cold? Like just other people became a source of like, like human connection became a source of anxiety? Or? No, it was more like um, 
I gradually started reading my Bible less. I gradually started thinking less about what God would think about a specific thing. Is that because you're, you're thinking like, well, if this could happen to me, how how good could this be? I mean, no, it, it wasn't it even fail, a it, sense of fail, failure. It was. I could not have at that point in my life even have related it to the fact that I'd been sexually assaulted. It was because I had no words for what had happened to me. I didn't understand what had happened or why it had happened. I couldn't articulate it. And it's it, it's so many, I mean, most sexual assaults of kids are something, someone yeah. they know. Yeah. 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 And so it was, and that, so that was very, very confusing. And so I would never have been able to put two plus two together. Like why all of a sudden do I really not want to read my Bible all the time? Or why all of a sudden am I not telling people about Jesus at school anymore? And why all of a sudden am I just sort of not feeling warm and excited about hearing good things from the Bible? Um, and it just I was just drifting away, but I didn't know that at the time. I just thought, well, now I'm in ninth grade, you know? <laughs> And so when we moved at that time then, I was in, going into high school for the first time. I'd been in a junior high. Now I was in a high school, and here's these cute boys. And it was like I didn't have any um, foundation or um, – I mean, there were several Christians that reached out to me. And so it wasn't like I wasn't going to the same kind of church. I had not I had Christian friends. But yet there was this coldness. And then here was this really cute boy. And he loved me, he said, you know, when you're that old, do you love, <laughs> you know, it's like Romeo and Juliet. Was that love? Um, and so um, I broke up with him because he scared me to death because I didn't know how to, like, ah, how to say no to him. And then he basically pursued me the rest of the time I was in high school. And so eventually he wore me down with letters and flowers and gifts and <laughs> And poetry, all sorts of things. Are you still getting letters and poems and flowers? Uh, he is the best man in the world. That's good. I he, like that. He is passionate. And yes, I am getting flowers and I do get poetry. And um, He's very convenient. He's the love a, of a, my a, life. question about the postal service. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't always use the, the mail when he's... <laughs> I, 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 lo I, lo I, lo I love talking to him about the, the postal service. Yeah. So yeah. So given this amount of passion in his pursuit and um, me, like, really with boundary issues. And he's not religious at this time, right? He, he, is, is he The extent of his religious experience was his mom and dad sending them off to Sunday school in the mornings to go to church occasionally, and, like once or twice. And now he knows they probably just wanted us out of the house. That's his guess. They, it was, they didn't attend church. And, uh, so it was he, like daycare. Pretty much. That was like child care. Free, free, free child, child care. care. There were five boys within four and a half years. So I really don't blame them for wanting a break. Yeah. 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 And he's a twin. He's a, the baby twin. And so um, he remembers, though, as being a small boy sitting out on the front porch of their house and looking up at the stars and thinking, there has to be a God. When you look at that, it goes on and on and on and on forever. There has to be a God. And he knew he um, wanted to know more about God, but didn't really know how to go about it, because typically what happens is church people tend to be more judgmental toward families that grow up outside the church. And he felt a lot of that um, from the church people in town. His family was a military family, and they didn't attend church. And um, he, he didn't feel like it was a place where he could go and get any answers. So he went away to college. Uh, he was a year older than me. And there, 
he heard Josh McDowell present evidence that demands a verdict. It was um, on campus. And he filled out a follow-me-up-please card every night, and no one followed him up. Wow. I know. <laughs> usually they're good with that. They, Yeah, they usually are, and no one followed him up. And so he, I was asking him at this point, I was so just cold to the things of the gospel. I was asking him what they say, and he was telling me, and I was, oh, well, what they say about our relationship? And he he said, well, I, he said, I, they talked about sex. He said, I think what they meant. And you guys are having sex at this point. Uh, we're doing all the things that generally lead up to it. Okay. So we hadn't crossed that line and, and uh, completed the deed, but we were headed that way. And he um, said, what I think they meant was you're only supposed to have one woman in your life at a time. <laughs> all right. And it's like, well, that makes sense. And, um, like, literally, we had intercourse for the first time after that, and I got pregnant. So it was like, boom. And he was in college, and I was uh, a senior, uh, ready to get ready to graduate. And we decided to get married. And so we got married two days after I graduated from high school. Wow, that's young. That's very young, 17 and 18. And so here we were, <laughs> two kids. and. After we got married, of course, it, I mean, I love him. It was wonderful. But I began to feel like everything in my life had just, like, gone this way. I didn't expect it to go. And Do, I, do you think it's a generational thing, too? Because I, it seems like uh, there's a lot of teen pregnancy, and, like, you hear very few stories of people saying, oh, let's get married now. I mean, just, you know what I mean? Like, but it, yeah. it sounds like it was more of a live option. That, 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 that it was very, it. yeah, very live option. You hear all the time about people getting married really young in that whole era. I mean, and all the way back, people used to get married, but you know, I mean, it wasn't that shocking that we would try to get married and make it work at that period of time, because you could make a living then you could get benefits. Even if you weren't working full time, you could, um, you could basically do it. And so um, I, I didn't realize, one thing I did not realize was when I got married, I lost my full ride scholarship to Kansas State University. It had been endowed for single students. And somehow I didn't comprehend that. And so then I arrived at school and I had no money for school. So that was like, that was hard because I'd grown up watching my parents go on to school and finishing school. And... Um, so we were doing the best we could, but back then, financial aid was based on your parents' income for six years after you started school, no matter whether you were married or not. So, you know, we didn't really have any help. Everybody expected us to crash and burn. Boosh. And um, we didn't. We've been now been married uh, did they 40 years. <laughs> did they communicate? Did people communicate that to you, that you're going to um, fail, this is not going to work? Yeah. We don't want to spend a lot of money on this thing for your wedding because, yeah, fill in the blank. Or... Um, well, th th those are horrible things. To hear. Horrible things to hear, or people who were like coworkers of a parent or the other running into me and saying, "You poor thing." Um, I had teachers who tried to persuade me to have an abortion. Um, there was a lot of pressure, and I, from the moment I knew I was expecting, I loved that baby, and I just—I mean, God just gave me this love for this baby, and I—it wasn't a choice for me. And so, I mean, I have many friends who have had that experience, and so like I, I and who have experienced the heartache on the other side. Either way, you've you've lost either your youth or your baby, depending on what you choose. 
And so um, that wasn't a thing that I consider. We loved each other. We were going to have a baby. And we wanted to make it work. Is it complicated? I know you love your husband deeply. You love yes. your family deeply. Is it hard to hold intention like the sense in which you probably thought, look, I made a mistake here. I, I probably crossed a boundary. I mean, I'm assuming. At it, that point in time, I wasn't. I was, or you didn't think that. At that point in time, I was th- not even, I wouldn't have even used the word mistake. It was, this happened and now there's a life coming into the world. And we are going to do what's right. That's how it felt to me at the time. I don't think everybody who gets pregnant has to get married, especially if the person that they had this relationship with isn't a good person or isn't interested in marrying them or they too, they just realize we can't do this. I mean, for me, it was really personal. And at the same time this was happening, I had friends who were uh, choosing to have abortions or going a different route. And we all commiserated with each other that all of our plans were changing and how no matter which thing you chose – it was a life-altering experience, and did, did your relationship to that to that ha- happening, like teen pregnancy, and these, does it change as you get older? I mean, do you, do you look at it differently? I mean, have there been times when you've felt better or worse about it, or where where the story? I mean, cause our stories are our life events are shaped by the stories we tell ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it, you're saying like early on there wasn't. A, as, as much of a shame story in your head as a kid, I mean, it's like this happened, it's going to be hard. But but did that did that change over time where there were seasons where – because you, you were yeah. around in some pretty conservative Christian circles. Yeah, that's what changed everything. <laughs> because we were so young and then um, we were have a very passionate relationship, we had three kids pretty quickly. And I was 23, I think, when we had three children – and there was so much to work on, and there's nothing like to real help you realize your own flaws, like having a child, because now you're missing sleep, you love them, you're taking care of them, you're being stretched beyond your abilities. But yet, at our age, we we didn't have the maturity to know how to stretch gracefully sometimes, and we just knew, like, he, because I mean, we fought passionately, we made up passionately, we were. We were loud. I threw dishes. Um, it was um, – our relationship was that starting out that way. And so we became involved with a really conservative um, Christian movement, very legalistic, because if we figured if we look good on the outside – I mean, this wasn't – this. I'm, I'm telling this looking back. If we look good on the outside, if we keep all these rules, then we will be good Christians and we'll be good parents. And instead, we became – really rigid, rule-keeping people, and usually, probably, I'm sure, a discouragement to our children as we're saying, you need to do this and you need to do that. And the, and the grace of God is nowhere in the discussion. So um, that was where we were at that point in time. And we were also, in the 1980s, there was a big explosion of the homeschool movement. We were also doing that. And we end up having six children. And you know, did you homeschool all the kids? Yeah. Did you ever just think, look, I got free government daycare. I could <laughs> relax a little bit. Like- no, no. It, it was like I thought I want to invest all of myself in my children. And my my parents were all educators. And at that point, having been, um, they knew my my mother was a teacher. She said, "Oh, you can do this. I know you can. I know how smart you are, and I know how organized you are, and I know you can do it." And 
so she was like would supplement things for me if I needed other things. We became part of a really conservative homeschool group. And of course, here I we never are. hear anybody say we were part of a really liberal homeschool group. I, I'm sure they <laughs> exist. No, they do. Yes, they actually. probably exist. But like, I, I just, just uh, I don't run into. Yes, her. mostly the hippie movement in California. A lot of them did what's called unschooling, where basically you're going to get up and that day and talk about whatever the kids interested in. So a whole different way of 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 schooling. So it was very common at that time too. There, so there was a liberal homeschool school movement actually, and. Um, so doing our best to do the, what was best for our children. Um, but that's, as I mean, here I am looking back on it now, and that's a really big chunk of, of work for a mother to take on herself, all that responsibility in running a home and having a large family. So um, had a huge amount of energy, grew up in this pioneer family um, where you learn to work really, really hard because if you don't work, your family dies on the prairie. <laughs> so um, we both had a really hard work eth- ethic and we worked and worked and tried to keep up with the kids and give them as best education as we could and to supplement um, what what needed to be supplemented with sports and teams and the programs that were at church and then the you know the resources to buy like the Kinburn Civil War series you know these sorts of things to supplement with so they would um get a good education and um just it was i had i wouldn't have even known at that point in time the word really i didn't really understand what the word legalist meant and when somebody would talk about what we were doing as being very legalistic it's like i didn't understand what they meant we were just trying to obey god so I didn't understand um, that I was putting more of an emphasis on law, keeping the law, doing this, doing that, instead of on grace, which is God loving us no matter what we've done, uh, not giving us uh, the punishment we deserve, taking that on in his, himself, Jesus taking all that on, and God loving us so much. So you said the religious project was more conceived of in terms of like personal reformation than redemption. It's yeah. kind of like if we can kind of like, yeah. if we do this project, it, it yeah. will come out as better people Yep, and more lovable. And We hope. Yeah. <laughs> Instead, we came out more rigid and inflexible and judgmental. And so in 1993, at this point in time, I'm expecting our sixth child. And we had a 500-year flood in Kansas. And, um, and you guys moved a lot, right? I mean— no, we lived in Manhattan, Kansas for 17 years. Wait, when did the wait. moving is? I'm just getting to the moving. Okay, you're getting to the yeah, moving. Okay, because okay. I'm thinking, I'm like, wait, I'm married to one of your kids. Yeah, you I are. know a lot of. It ha, yeah. seems like you moved a lot. We did. We moved six times in seven years. So I'm just, yeah, and it started with that flood. Um, my husband was working for a lot. So, Do floods happen a lot? I mean, I, like, <laughs> I, I mean, you, I, I've seen floods, I mean, things at the beach and stuff like that, but. I mean, the, like I heard a thing on public radio about flood insurance and the government and, and the government has to because no insurance company can make flood insurance profitable and actuarial. Right. And so I just think like, well, I, well, this morning, my, uh, my wife informed me I was a coastal elite, but <laughs> so I, I, but I do think that people on the coast don't, I don't conceive of things like tornadoes and floods as, as, as being things that actually shape everyday existence in some yes. Kansas. Well, here's how it, here's how it happened. Um, my husband had been working two full time jobs 
to provide for our family. His father was dying that year. Uh, we were expecting our sixth child, and it began to rain. You can only get flood insurance if you're in a flood zone. So nobody has flood insurance, especially if you're in town. You're way up from the river. You're nowhere near the river. And so as it began to rain every day starting in April and ending in August, every day it rained, out of the Flint Hills of Kansas came seeping the water that ran down into the ground. It came seeping out through the rocks and into our neighborhood, which was nowhere near the river. Meanwhile, the river was cresting and running over, and the dam um, on Tuttle Creek basically had to be opened to let the floodwaters out. And um, you could see the, the water rising higher and higher and higher on the dam, and the river is spilling out into the, the fields. And our neighborhood, everyone in the, our neighborhood had water in their basement. We had to take all of our furniture was destroyed in the basement. We had to put appliances up on um, wood um, pallets to keep them up out of the water. And um, our foundation was impacted of our we had lived in a historic home and it was impacted and the walls were beginning to cave inward gradually bit by bit. And um, this was all happening and Tim's father died right in the middle of that. And as we're driving to Fort Riley, where he was to be interred, and having the memorial service and doing all these things, um, behind us, the, the, the highway patrol was shutting the roads down. So we drove across this causeway to get um, to where Tim lived, and the water of the overfilled lake was lapping all the way across the causeway. It was terrifying. You're like, okay, we're driving into basically what looks like the lake <laughs> as we're going across and um, it was really difficult. Our boys had been, our oldest boys had been sandbagging down by the river. They couldn't get, to, didn't get to see their grandpa's body because no one could find them. Um, they were trying to help people whose homes were actually going to be filled by the river. They were trying to get the, all their possessions up, out of high enough up into the homes that they survive. All that was happening, and he died right in the middle of that. And I was pregnant, and so um, those were sim He never, our youngest child, never got to meet her grandpa. So that was happening, and as a result of all that, um, my husband had realized I'm, we're going to have to move away from here because I can't make enough money here to meet our family's needs. And he applied out of state for another job, which was um, he became a postmaster in Scottsbluff, Nebraska, and left me pregnant with to try to get the house repaired so we could get the house sold and, and I could join him. And what I encountered was all the red tape that you have after a flood. Well, the water didn't come in from outside the house. It came in from under the house, up through the floor. So you're not covered by flood insurance. And so then we have these loans where we'll loan you a huge amount of money to fix your house. And then, of course, you'll owe more than the house is worth. Great, that doesn't work. And so I had to wait to be in line because everybody's house had to be fixed. And there I was getting more and more pregnant. And um, finally, it was our turn, and the people came and they said, we, we can't repair this. We're going to have to jack your entire house up off the foundation and put an entire new foundation in. And at that point, FEMA's like, we can't advance you that money. It's going to be way, way, way more than the house is worth. And we're like, we're just a little family and a little home that we've owned for over 10 years. Please help us. And basically, we couldn't fix it. We couldn't rent it. We couldn't sell it. 
and he's already working somewhere else. So um, we you were, just you can't do it. You just condemn it, or what? Do you, what, what do you, um, basically, we went ahead and moved to Nebraska and tried to sell it to someone who was a, a um, contractor. That was our best bet because we could sell it for what we owed, and maybe they could fix it up. And of course, everything fell through because of the financing issue, because of how much it was going to cost to jack it up. And so basically, we ended up losing our home and going bankrupt through that whole experience. And that was how we arrived in Nebraska, brokenhearted and with our finances destroyed and um, a brand new baby by then. And... um, here we were far, far from our families, so we didn't have any family support. And here we were waltzing into a new church, and we couldn't tell anybody these things that had happened because according to our legalistic mindset, um, well, those things only happen to people who don't love God. And we were tithing all the way throughout while— So you thought— <laughs> How can these things happen to us? We kept all the rules. Did you think there must have been some secret, Sam, something that was un, not you weren't aware of? Like we were cursed or something? No, it, that what I was thinking was I didn't realize it at the time. Now I know I was becoming mad at God because it's like we did this, we did that, we taught the kids this way, we kept all the rules, we tithed, we did all these things. Therefore, this tragedy cannot happen. Why did you let us down? And. I realized at one point after we were there that I had quit praying, and I hadn't prayed for about six months. So I called a friend of mine who had had a baby with cancer, because that was worse than what I was going through. And she said, turn back and face God, and he'll, he will, he'll make himself real to you. So I thought, okay, I'll turn back and face God. And I got in a Bible study. It was a K. Arthur Bible study, basically why bad things happen to good people or something. I can't remember the name of it. Lord, where are you when bad things happen? K. Arthur. And in this book, it was basically talking, it was a Bible study on the sovereignty of God and the fact that God will use events in our lives, even bad things like the flood and everything we were going through to to cause us to realize that he loves us more and that it will be good for our character, be good for our growth. Well, what I didn't know at the time was that God was stripping legalism away from us by helping us to realize, you know, you can't keep a set of laws and rules and therefore you know, God owes you then a perfect existence where nothing bad ever happens. That doesn't happen. Bad things happen on this in this life. And there, you know, there was just a series of events that happened. Almost every one of our ch- children was involved in some way with something awful that happened in their life. And I grew increasingly angry at God because, why are you picking on my kids? <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, I felt like I had a contract with him. If I did all these good things— Good things would happen, and yet these all these hard things were happening to the kids. And then as soon as we were like pretty much settled in Nebraska, the Postal Service froze all the manager's salaries. The economy was tanking. It was a bad time. And my husband realized that to be able to continue to help our children, to do as much as we could to get them, you know, help them in college, to continue raising them, he was going to have to get another promotion. So... That's when we moved six times in seven years. And, of course, Y2K happened. And one of, you know, several of our moves were involved with that because, you know, the computers weren't supposed to work. Um, we actually lived across from Columbine when that happened in, in our moves. And the, the Yeah, you would live there when the shootings. Right across yeah. the street. We'd moved in five days before it happened. 
And I mean, literally all of Lindy her- said that when she chose, like she chose like, cause she, she could have gone to school. Like you right. the option. she would have like, been going to that school. She's like, ah, you know, I, and I we got, gave her the option. She said, I'm kind of running my own rig now. I got my own routine down. She's like, I felt very validated in my choices. <laughs> I'm not choosing to go. For sure. Yeah. She would have been at that school. And yeah, um, as, as every kid went off to college, we would ask them, um, okay, critique the teacher and the guidance counselor. Tell me what I can do better. So there was always something each one of them said, and I would try to apply it with the next ones. And so she, we had given her the choice, what do you want to do? Because that was something that was the, the two older two wished that they had had a, a choice sooner. And basically, um, when we got to Nebraska, they ended up finish, hi, finishing high school at um, Scotts Bluff High School. So they went because sports, they couldn't access sports anymore. They were athletic. They really wanted to be there for that. So they made that choice. And then Lindy was like, she didn't see and really a need to switch what she was doing. She felt comfortable doing it. She was going to graduate early. She's very, very smart. And yeah, she was so self-regulated. She said one time that one of their neighbors was like a psychologist mm-hmm. and was like, you know, and like, I think one of her brothers was like pretending he's doing his homework, like t- using like the math books, to like tan himself. And, say, and, <laughs> and she's like, she's like working. So I was like, nobody tells you to do this. She's like nine or 10. She's like, well, no, I mean, I want to go to college someday and make something of myself. And he's like, you, you're so self-regulated like, as a child. I want to take a quick break from my conversation with Melinda Inman to ask you a question. Do you like this podcast? Are you enjoying it right now? Do you want to help keep it going? If so, you can sponsor this podcast by going to Patreon. If you just go to the podcast website, giveandtake.fireside.fm, you can find the link there. Several people have already done it and they're helping keep this podcast going and you can too so before we continue with fiona i want to take a moment to thank the sponsors that are helping make this project go thanks to david and winona babico peter stegenwald samantha blythe sari graham jordan morseberger and josh redder thank you all for being my patreon sponsors if you want to sponsor this podcast and help keep this content that you enjoy coming out please just go to patreon.com forward slash scott kent jones and there you can find information about how to give if you give just five bucks a month you will get a shout out on this podcast and help develop some future podcast projects that will be unfolding in the future thanks again to my sponsors and please if you like this podcast consider becoming a patreon sponsor and now back to melinda inman my mother-in-law yeah i mean that's what happens a lot when you're homeschooling you do like this one-on-one teaching, and then you, they, you set them over here, and they do their work. And I took my job seriously, very seriously, because those kids are smart, and I wanted them all to go to college and to get the best education they could. And so, yeah, most of them got the memo, <laughs> and we're, we're ready to go. And then even the the one who didn't, well, he like went on and did really great things. He recently did pilot training. So, they were we we were hardworking and they were hardworking. They saw us working hard. We they were working hard, and then they each have their own personal integrity. So, um, yeah, the psychologist across the street kept saying, "How are you doing so well? You've like maxed out the stress chart." <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, well, uh, yeah, we we were, but what he couldn't see was like. Inside my body, I was starting to fall apart. I know I have an autoimmune disease, and like the roots of that were kind of all dug in right there. Some of the symptoms I have started then. And I know, I mean, I, I know you're one on the enneagram, right? And 
yes. reformer. And one I'm of the hard on everyone and harder on myself. Right. I mean, the internal <laughs> critic, right? Yes. So I wonder it, how, like, the psychological and, like, autoimmune inflammation. Yeah. And, and also, you're, I mean, you don't handle stress well. And, 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 and as one of the things, you're probably self stressed, right? There's oh. a sense in which. Always, yeah. Always, I if I, I mean I was always hard on myself. I should have done it better. I shouldn't have been short with them that time. Oh my gosh, I didn't use a very kind voice. I was trying to learn how to praise way, way, way more than I ever criticized. So I was like in the process of turning, working on that. And so every failure to you know praise them for something positive instead of focusing on the negative i was really hard on myself all these things were happening and i was thinking it surely has to all be my fault i'm you know i don't control the the, the floods <laughs> but yet felt like you know because of my legalistic nature that you know these things were happening and and so yeah i blame myself it's a good thing my husband's way more balanced than I am. So he he was always so supportive. He's, you know, always encouraging me. And he would sing, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus, <laughs> when I get in these dark places. And so um, as we were moving, of course, the kids are going off to college, so they're scattering across, um, you know, Wyoming, Nebraska, Florida, Russia. Lindy ended up going to Russia when she graduated early. She went for two separate years. And then we arrived in um, Michigan at a really good um, Bible teaching church and began to learn some solid, solid teaching about, you know, faith and grace and mercy and God's sovereignty to work together all these things for our good. And I began to realize how hard I had been on myself. And by then, I, I, my body is, I'm having lots of problems with my body and realizing um, that I was becoming a better mother, the less hard I was on myself and the less legalistic I was. Putting away rule-keeping for the sake of trying to be all I thought I needed to be, and learning to just accept God's grace. Shocking thought. (laughs) At at what point in that part of journey are you thinking, I'm going to write novels? Like what? I mean, how? Do you, what? How did that come about? Yeah, and so it, it seems like I mean everything you're telling me about the sort of uptight religion and the kind of judgmental sort of thing, other people judging you, being judgmental yourself, and things like that does not sound like influences that stimulate creativity. No, absolutely not. So when we were first starting to homeschool, I thought I will start working on this novel about my great grandparents that I've always wanted to write. I got one chapter done and I realized I can't do this and be the kind of person I need to be to write fiction and be able to get the kids educated. And that's my priority. And that's what I really wanted to do well. So I set it aside and I thought I can write this story later. And so I set it aside. I didn't really realize then what it had to do with creativity. I just thought it had to do with more what I could focus on, what I could accomplish. I couldn't do all those things. So I set the project aside. I focused on getting everyone educated. And in the process of becoming a legalist, I sort of lost myself because I was always the crazy friend who did the things that people tell the stories about a long time later. Um, 
And so I sort of lost the fun side of myself in the process of trying to be a rule keeper and being so concerned about instructing everyone and making sure everybody was okay. And that you watch movies differently when you have a house full of kids than you do when it's just your husband. And you have to explain, oh, no, now here's what this happened. Now, this wasn't right. He shouldn't have done that. I mean, so you're doing all this during during a movie and now you just watch the movie. <laughs> so it's, it's a whole lot more relaxing. But um, as the house was emptying out, I realized that when I was done having, in, I think I invested 28 years in teaching all the kids, I realized that when it was done, I had really, I love my children. I invested myself in them. I thought, I will die. There will be, I'll die when they're all gone. I've served my purpose. <laughs> I've raised them. They're gone. I can die. You know, so <laughs> that's I'm surprised the- <laughs> no one ever wrote a folk song titled know, that. I know. Yeah, catchy, catchy, right? And so um, when there was only... Uh, one left, I decided, at home. She's She was the youngest, and she had four years of high school before her, and I knew I could work side by side with her, and I would try to start writing again. And in the process of starting to write, I, re- I began to realize how much I had lost myself. And in the first drafts of the first of the first stories— It sounds like you lost yourself at 13— I mean, it sounds Pretty like much. it sounds like you have a, you have a, a long unfolding story of self loss from Pretty much. being an early motherhood, other mother, early wife. Do you ever feel is there a resentment ever? Like, gosh, if I made different, it's hard though because you love your kids. Oh, I love my. You kids. love your, and yet you think, geez, if I had made some different decisions, would life have been easier? Would things have been? Is it hard to hold those intention, or did you learn how to reconcile? Because you mentioned being angry about God, and and, and mm-hmm. I mean. How, are these like hard things to hold intention in your um, head? Yeah, it was. I was growing to be more and more angry with God. But the thing that, as I look back on my life, the thing that I regret is the legalism. It isn't that I made. I mean, now I look back at myself with grace. I see you were sexually assaulted at thirteen. This guy who was crazy about you pursued you. He came from his own bo- broken places. All your broken places fit together. Of course, you had sex. So now that's how I feel about that. Um, and you wanted to have a bunch of children because you felt lonely and alone and just wanted to people your house with people to love and to be um, something you didn't have as far as a, that, to recreate the big family from Oklahoma, the storytelling family. The, 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 t- that's what I was trying to do is to cre- recreate the home my grandmother had. And, and you, But you chose not to first go back to that story. You, you, your first two right. novels were our primeval Sort of taking the yep. biblical world, Adam and Eve, Cain and Lilith, and and yep. and also, I mean, you, you you write things that have sexual imagery and love stories, and is this because so much of your own finding of yourself involved your body interpreting things that happened to that? I mean, the way you describe it. it happened to you in some sense. I mean, you, you describe as her a passivity. Is there a sort of kind of integrate and heal your own sexuality, intimacy issues, spirituality by going back and and, and engaging historical fiction in, in, in different, that involves sort of these kinds of issues? That wasn't my intentional conscious purpose, but that was God's purpose. As I started writing, yeah, I wrote first... Um, the one I pu- book I published second is Fallen, but I wrote that one first, and it's Adam and Eve in the Garden. And it was as I was 
that that book was edited. It was the hardest thing to write. I edited, 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 because I saw in the first drafts the kind of beliefs I had <laughs> about God and men and women and sexuality. And I knew that that no longer jived with my theological understanding and my understanding in my from being a married woman in my own marriage. And so I consulted a, a professor at Azusa Pacific who was a f- um, on the board of this international ministry that we're involved in. I said, can you look at my manuscript? Sure. She gave me a bunch of great feedback. And she also pointed out a whole bunch of things to me that were like, yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. And it all had to do with... um I don't know, having a more of this paternalistic sort of uh, way that I was viewing the marriage and how God interacted and it was distant. And and I had to, that book, oh, I agonized over that because I realized basically with every revision, I was writing down and recording what I now know and believed about who God is and what marriage is and who men are and who women are. And um, because anytime you're part of a legalistic society, basically, you have a lot of um, – not a whole lot of women being treated as equal in Christ to men. And so I was working through that as I was revising that manuscript over and over and over again, and I just could not get that that ready where I felt like I had it the way I wanted it to be. So I set it aside, and I wrote the second one, and that was about Cain and his wife – and who I named Lilith, and I, you know, did there was all the research alluded to or hinted at or included that you can find all sorts of stories about Lilith and Cain. So Cain and Abel, and Lilith, Cain and Lilith and Abel, and um, to what happened after that word. And it was a it's a story of redemption. I was in Cain <laughs> in that story. I'm a firstborn. He's a firstborn. Well, you, you and Anthony Scaramucci said, hey, me and Ryan's previous, get along like Cain and Abel. This exactly. means I'm going to kill him and try to hide it from God. Oh. Exactly. Or fire him. <laughs> yeah. So I, I was in that character a lot, and it's a story of redemption. And um, I also, by the time I was working on— Because yeah, you cast Cain as a prodigal. I mean, you, you, More like a prodigal story. Yeah, that this is one. And in yeah. fact, he wants— God sort of exiles him. It's interesting because you you look at the story of Cain and and then Cain's line. They're the people that are making stuff in the world, metallurgy and instruments in the city. So it's like you kind of those were his descendants, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's it's one of these things where almost I guess in the sense of exile, you you know, it, 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 there's this sort of friends, like there's this. Frenetic activity. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So in his exile, he's realizing who he is before God. And God didn't smite him dead and instead marked him with a sign that nobody could smite him dead or God would bring judge, you know, judge them. And so he goes off by himself and basically discovers himself. And so does Melinda discover herself as she's writing it. And so there's grace given to Cain. And this relationship he has with Lilith is a healing relationship, as our relationship was, my husband and I, together. And there's a lot of us in that, (laughs) in that story. And at the same time I was editing it to get it ready for publication, I was working in a prison ministry and offering just grace to women, some who had committed murder. And so because I'm working with women who've gone through this sort of experience 
I know people who have committed murder. And so it was able, I was able to write him the remorse he felt afterward. More what I had seen and heard is really true remorse. And from, people you've worked with in, the, in that prison read the novel? Yes. Yes. Well, how did they react to it? Well, the problem with doing prison ministry is there's all sorts of rules about who you get to see again after you've finished your program. So I donated a pile of books, and I don't ever have and not ever gotten to talk with another with a woman who's read it after they arrived there. So because mm. of the way the rules are set up, because they're to protect the people who go into the prison, they're to keep the boundaries, so, so you know, pr- to pr- keep the people in the prison safe from things being smuggled in, and then also to keep people who work in the prison safe from relationships that could be harmful afterward or some, you know, those rules. So the books are there still in the prison, and um, it was during the editing process, my editor would say, um, what about this part? And I'd say, no, that has to be there because that's what hap- That's how a person who's m- committed murder actually thinks. So that has to be there. Because you're trying to you know, edit and cut and make things smooth. And I've worked with the same editor, Joe Kokoro, on all of my novels. And I really trust him. But he also really trusts me. So if it's a point of theology or it's a point of um, something I knew from my personal experience, from knowing people who've, who've committed crimes— um, he trusts my judgment. I trust his. So that book ended up being published first, and that was. Do, do you think of yourself as a Christian novelist, or, or or a novelist that happens to be a Christian? I mean, do you? How, um, that's do you, a really you... good question. Uh, at first, I I thought I was writing this book more for that book more for the open market, because I wanted to show so many things about healing and grace, but yet I wanted more people to know it, and then than just the Christian market. And then I realized, well, because I am a Christian and I know so many people who, like me, didn't understand God's grace, I gradually began to realize probably that's more who I'm writing for. It's people who are claiming to be Christian and who believe in Christ, but yet haven't really realized how much love and mercy and grace God has for us. And so that became, that's how that, you know, as you're aiming toward your audience— um, when I went back to edit Fallen, which is Adam and Eve in the garden, oh, everything was very different after I'd finished the first novel. I had so many more things in, in my own theology and my own sense of God's grace that I basically, the book's hardly at all the way it was when I first drafted it, when I was still in this place where I had these more rigid ideas and I felt like I had more... Um, artistic freedom. I knew more about creativity. I was further away from the rigid me who was so hard on myself. And um, I wanted to show not only the love of God from before creation, his plan A from before creation to redeem us before we'd even done anything wrong. I also wanted to illustrate a lot of things about the beauty of marriage, uh, like I did in Refuge and how the intimate, the sexual act in marriage is often a healing and a binding part of marriage. And the sex within marriage is beautiful. God designed it. And so the, that was a lot of the, the um, point <laughs> of, of, of a lot of the sexuality that I included in both of those novels. And I hadn't thought about teenagers reading them until one of the women I know from, well, several women said, I'm giving this to my teen. And I thought, oh, yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) 
And so then they, the teenagers started passing it around, especially the story of um, Refuge, the story of Cain and Lilith. And because I had pictured in this relationship, um, Cain's basically a church boy. He's out there doing the worship, but his heart isn't right. And so as so many kids in church, like me, were doing, he ends up having sex before he should and causes all these cobl- these problems that happen in his relationship with, with Lilith and in his life, and which always happens. And yet there's mercy. Here's this mercy and this grace and God making it beautiful. And I so, asked— so you grew up in the church, and it sounds like you didn't get messages about spirituality or sexuality that were helpful. No. Uh, well, in the 1970s, there was, there was a big push— in the United Methodist Church about legalization of, of abortion. That was because that was it was becoming legal then. So that was a big part of what got talked about about sexuality. And then there was also this understanding at that time that you didn't talk about sex. That was a parent's responsibility <laughs> to talk to your kids about sex. And um I remember being embarrassed whenever my mom tried to talk about it. And I, I don't know that she did anything wrong. I just remember being embarrassed about it. And and um, so, like, most of the stuff you learned about sex was in the movies, so <laughs> which isn't necessarily a good place to, to be learning about that sort of thing. So, um, no, not really. And then in the 70s and 80s, it wasn't a very grace-filled time as far as what was happening in the church. Um that was one reason when the Benedict Option came out in Christianity Today recent in you know like this last year, um, I really reacted to it because it reminded me of some of the legalistic tenets of the group we'd been part of, a part of to pull away from society, and that would make your kids keep your kids safe basically. And so there wasn't like grace anywhere in there, and you know trying to raise kids in a culture that isn't a christian culture is always going to be tricky for parents so you know i don't have any easy answers about that but um yeah i wasn't i didn't get the message and i don't know if it was because of my woundedness from when i was 13 that in my mind i was dirty and i was broken so it didn't really matter you know i couldn't have vocalized that at the time but that was there inside me yeah it, it, it's interesting cuz i never learned the, the characters, your your great grandparents, right? They're your they're your great. Yeah, no longer alone. Yeah, is there is it a challenge because you write you have these cute letter exchanges and things, and I mean, and it's a very warm romance, and yeah, is it because it is a sort of time like if you're writing a primeval history, right? I guess you don't think of Adam Eve or Cain as, as sort of you don't think of like Puritan sensibilities. Things. No, but but but, there, but that does shape American history, right? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, uh, and uniquely, I mean, the Puritans, <laughs> you know, that kind of spirit that, uh, coming here for for religious expression and things like right. that that shapes. Is it harder to describe an intimate relationship in a cult in the reimagining it in a more puritanical culture? Yes. It was much easier to write romance and love when you knew that they no, that there had been no law written down. And so there's Adam and Eve in the garden, or Cain and Lilith, and they're exploring this relationship. There's no rules. And so it's like, would Adam have done that? Yeah, he would have. You know, And so it, it, it changed our relationship with one another as I was writing it, because it was like, oh, God made this. It's beautiful. This is good. Have you seen the the Noah film? I haven't. What is it? I haven't been able to see it. Is it called Noah? I think so. With with, um, 
Yeah. Um, oh, you're not Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe. Well, Lindy, yeah. Lindy and I love that movie. A lot of movies, Did you? But part of it, it, it's like Mad Max. I mean, it's like it's yeah. It's like a post-apocalyptic, pre-apocalyptic. Yeah. It's it's so 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 things with violence, sex, or it's it, it just the primeval history yeah. sounds. It just sounds wild. It's, it's the sounds, wild yeah, west. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but this is the real west of the United States. But it, it but it is hard. I, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's an interesting. And here, it was, what made it really interesting was my aunts and my uncles and my parents were telling me uh, family stories when I started writing No Longer Alone. I was doing research on my own. I knew from my um, interaction with my great-grandmother that she and my grandfather had, had a very passionate relationship. I knew from the fact that we found beautiful lingerie that he gave her, and he gave her beautiful gifts all the time. And I knew they, and I, then there's the kissing in the buggy. So I knew they had this passionate relationship. So my aunts and uncles and my parents were telling me stories, and I was writing the novel basically one chapter at a time. This is just for the rough draft. So I'm writing it, but they're going to read it next. That was a great inhibitor to being able to write any really warm marriage uh, scenes until after they were done with their part and they were completely gone, and I could then edit. I edited on that novel before I got it ready for seven years. That's just something I've I mean, like, it's tough. It's like, like your parents watching you. Right, it's not like your kids, right? Like, like Lindy's like, it's just, it's hard to read stuff that your mom's written. That's what they About say. sex. I know. Like, you know, I just, you know, she's like, look, I, I know my parents are sexual people. I, I like, I, you know, I, I, I was pretty aware of that as a kid. Or it's just so awkward. Yeah. That's what, I don't think my youngest daughter has read anything I've written <laughs> because for that reason, because um, we don't really think of our parents that way. And I'm sure that the reason I couldn't hear my mother, anything she said to me was because like, <gasps> I could talk to my grandmother, though. I had a very good grandmother, not my mother, my mother's a good mother, but I had a very excellent grandmother who I was the oldest granddaughter. I grew up in the same town where she was very close to her. And I could talk to her about a lot of this stuff. She was a person I told first when I had my first period was my grandmother. I couldn't tell my mother. <laughs> so I understand that when they say that. And I think, I think it's more uncomfortable for the girls. I don't know. The boys have all read the book. They love the book, at least as far as I know. There might be, a, I mean, the ones who have read there might be one who hasn't read. I'm not really sure. I, I didn't put any pressure on them to read it. You know, what if you don't read it? But the girls, I think, both felt the same way. So, I mean, both of them. I don't know if it's because I wrote it. I don't know. I don't really understand. But, um, yeah, so it's your mother writes a story that has intimate scenes in it. It's like, oh, do you want to read that? Like one of – I can't remember who asked me – what, she just write things that you and dad did? It's like, no, no, none of these scenes have anything to do with my personal relationship with your dad. These are different people. These are these characters. Cain is in character. Lilith is in character. Adam is in character. Eve is in character. They're not me. They're different people. Even though parts of you end up in all your characters, none of those things I wrote about were ever anything that happened between my husband and I. So it wasn't like, oh, well, maybe that one time I'll just write about it. Nope. Completely newly created for the scene. So, um, but yet, you know, when you're writing, reading something your parent wrote like that, that there's parts of them in the scene. So, yeah, I understand. I understand. If you, if you write books with, with, with sexual content, right? And I guess also this is, you know, 
because we're in a sexist culture. I mean, I heard Amy Schumer say, well, you know, I'm known as a sex comic because if yeah. a woman talks about sex, words, a guy can just whip his genitals out and say, <laughs> like, oh, that's so interesting and edgy. But if, yeah. a, if a woman does something like, but do, do you, if you write novels that have a, 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 a deep thread of sexual content, do you get sexualized in a different way by reader or do people treat you differently? Because they figure, oh, my gosh, this is on your brain or something like mm-hmm. that. Is it- oh, yeah. There's a variety of reactions. First, the react- there's a reaction of the mother who said, I'm going to have my teenager read this because you've really captured what it's like to be discovering sex. And and now I don't have to talk about my kids. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Here's the book. Read it. Yeah. So I have that reaction. I've had people that I know who've read the story really touched with. So there's a lot of sex in it, especially Refuge. It's like, yeah, that's what the characters would have done. It was a different time. Those were different people. It's not television. There's it's not, not television. It's nothing. In fact, here, there's first, nothing to do. First, I have it's about to survive and have sex. Survive and have sex. So I have to insert here. I had what I called the sex, the sex police. I had several readers who were my beta readers who I would have re- read over this. I want to make sure I haven't crossed any lines in these sexual scenes because I want them to be PG 13, not R, not X, not erotica. I did not want to write, write that. And so one of the one of my early critics was a was professional editor for a Christian publishing house. She'd never married. She'd been a missionary in Africa. So spinster missionary lady. I guess that's how you could summarize. And one is a sibling of mine who has no problem criticizing me and who is more reserved than I am, more private. And then there were several others, but those two, I mean, their opinion, because of their different places in life, I listened to very carefully. The The older woman who'd never married, who was a missionary, loved everything I wrote. It was within the bounds of decency in her mind, and I trust her. She'd lived in Africa, so she has like a more global view of sexuality. And then my sibling, who was, I trusted her, she said, this one word you cross the line by using primal right there. And I think, okay, I see what you're saying. You know, I mean, little changes like that. And so I submitted both of those first two to the sex police. <laughs> and um, because I wanted to make sure that I hadn't crossed the line, that I was still with, within the PG-13 parameter, that you could give the book to your teenager and it would be real enough Without being enticing or, you know, causing someone to, well, I think I'll go out and experiment with this. I want it to be beautiful. You don't really need, teenagers don't need a lot yeah, of Yeah, not a whole lot of encouragement. Yeah, yeah exactly. So. so I wanted it to be warm and love-based and to show the flaws of people and how you end up doing that when you didn't intend to do it. And so with the with No Longer Alone, the scenes automatically be, were more subdued. Not only did was all my aunts and uncles, my parents, going to read them as they were being produced. But even when I moved away from them, there was something about the fact that we were in a different time with different characters, different people, that I backed away from the scenes sooner. So, you know, basically the door is shut. Then it happens. The next morning, they're in bed together talking. And so it's like you're coming in later. You're not there so much during and it seemed the right thing to do with the characters, who I knew, <laughs> with the time, with the climate. And so, like, I really believe that when an author writes a novel, you write – the character sometimes tells you where the story's going to go. Once you've created the character, 
the character may end up working in a way you didn't think they were going to go, and the story's not going to go to the right. It's going to go to the left. And so you have to let the character be true to this person you've created. And it's almost like they become a real human being. And so, yeah, that character would do that. Yeah, my great-grandparents would have done this. And your great-grandmother in the novel, I mean, she, one of the early interactions, she, it comes out, she, it's interesting because she's like in the spiritual but not religious category. I mean, she's got deeply spiritual beliefs. She's not, she doesn't attend church. She doesn't, which is funny because I think we don't think that people are like that. My great-grandfather. Yeah, my great-grandmother did attend church. Okay, yeah, Yeah. my great-grandmother doesn't. Right, Right. no, I'm sorry. Your great-grandfather doesn't, yeah. And that's interesting because there, I mean, that actually happened a lot back then. I mean, yes. we, we think it didn't just because we think everyone, but yeah. But that's interesting because you got, you kind of give, it's an interesting well, here dynamic, was, their own sp- kind of spiritual stories and their own romance. It was that. really modern. As I started writing that, I realized, oh my gosh, this is happening now where we have the nuns, where they may have a relationship with, with Jesus, but maybe they've been burned by the church, which happens all yeah, too there's often. A, there's a technical term for them within that's called the duns. There's actually, yeah. the, 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 these are people that, yeah, if you ask about their beliefs, they're, they're done. They're, vis, they're, they're, they're very clearly Christian in what, what they believe about God and the world, but they're just out of institutional, they don't want any part of it. Anymore. Mm-hmm. I know lots of, yeah, I'm sure you do. Folks. Well, I think a lot of the movements that you see also happening, like Bethel and some of those movements, are the same appeal to the same kind of person. It's not like any church you've been in, you know, so it's a place that appeals to them. And yeah, my great grandfather, the way he grew up, um, well, his father died when he was 15. He took on, he quit school and took on the, the responsibility of providing for his mother and his siblings. He, um, you know, was was a very responsible person. But when he, when they got married, when his parents got married, his father was Catholic, his mother was Protestant, and neither one of the clergy would marry them. And in fact, make the made them take a vow that they would neither one of them never take the children to the church that they had attended. So nobody. This is, it, the this practical wasn't marry anybody. Like I, I always feel like ministers should marry anybody because if you don't do it, someone will do it, and in their mind is. What they will carry with them is so and so would. They, do they it. didn't. I felt judged. I, felt, yeah. I just feel like it's like it's you know. Yeah, I, you, it makes sense. You're not yeah. gonna like save the Christian religion, right? By, by turning not away a couple, and you're not gonna become. Or he's he's Catholic and she isn't. Yeah. So so that shaped his whole childhood, and it's like they fought about religion in the childhood in the ch- the home he grew up in. And then his father died. And so he, he's basically, he became a believer out in the field as he's working. And he was a young man, but he didn't talk about it. He didn't go to church. He couldn't go to church. It made him sick. And here's my great grandmother. She's getting a degree from Moody Bible Institute. She's a Sunday school teacher. She's a school teacher. She's a suffragette. She's highly educated for a woman of that time. And he pursues her. <laughs> and so they'd been childhood friends and he pursues her and she was. She really did handle his lack of going to church exactly the way it's portrayed in the book. She patiently allows God to work that out with him. She didn't insert herself. She didn't get impatient. She didn't lecture him. She didn't teach him. She let it take as long as it took. And in real life, it actually took longer than I portrayed it because it was fiction. I could shorten things up, you know, And but yet I'm writing a sequel now. So... Probably I'm going to have some of this resurface again because I know how long it actually took. Is it weird? Is it is it fair to say that it sounds like 
in some ways, your grandma, your great grandma, took the opposite approach that you did for seasons of life. Yes, like, I mean, she was so filled with grace. She was she she my grandmother and my great grandmother, both my um, the woman who married the child. My great grandparents have Jack that's born at the end of that novel. The woman who married him, my grandmother. And the great-grandmother, Avery, both of them were the kind of women that, well, when Tim met her, he said, she's the first Christian I've ever met. (laughs) He'd known people who called themselves Christians all the time. And he thought she was the first Christian he'd ever met. She loved him because I loved him and welcomed him warmly into the family. She knew we could make it. She told us that all the time. She was invested. She came and helped me with my first two babies. And that's how my great-grandmother Avery was, too. It's like grace, 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 grace. God loves you. Grace. She had a Bible um, Bible, sto- um, Bible bookstore in her home at the end of her life. She was just, that was, she was patient. She was kind. It was, I was so glad to have those two women in my life. It, yes, it was almost like returning to Avery and Ruth <laughs> was part of the whole process of the books that came out in that sequence. And you don't realize as an author why you're choosing to write this book first and why that one next and that. But it was all part of my own spiritual journey, the whole process. I've been writing now for almost 10 years on fiction. So it's like it's like marking the 10-year journey I was on as I was continuing to move away from legalism and more towards grace. So, What what does the journey look like now? I mean, your own autobiography seems like one of working through a lot of Get it like getting to know yourself, forgiving yourself, yeah, allowing yourself to be a person, pretty you know, much a subject, not an object. Yeah, it, what is it like now? What are the struggles? What are what are the the like? How would you describe the journey you're on now? Well, because I now do have a chronic illness, and um, I'm on medication for it, so my body is recovering. And is what, that a stigmatizing thing? I mean, do you find people... Autoimmune disease is very stigmatizing. You can't see it. It's not cancer. But yet, I've been sick since uh, 2000, was it 13 or 14? 14 when I got sick. So it's like, it's very stigmatizing. Yes, you feel misunderstood. But what it did in my life is that after I was done teaching the kids, I'd taken on more too much stuff again. So I just couldn't quit running on the treadmill so not only was I doing prison ministry, but I was writing all the Bible study material for the church, and I was just here, and I was working on seminary classes, and I was doing all this stuff, all this stuff, and I had all these balls up in the air. And I thought, when I first got sick, I thought, oh, I am so burned out. I just need to take a week off. And then the week became two, and then it became three, and then it became four. Six weeks later, I went to the doctor, and she thought I had had probably mono because it showed up, but... Something had changed in my health that I now had an autoimmune disease, and it takes years to diagnose them because there's no one test that shows you if you have anything. So that was, yeah, in a lot of ways stigmatizing. Nobody understands you, and eventually you become invisible, and eventually everybody quits asking, how can I help you, or what do you need done? And so you're really lonely. And so there I was with Jesus, me and me, Jesus and I face-to-face, realizing that I had again taken on too much because I again was realizing it wasn't legalistic. It was me thinking somehow I would be serving the Lord better, doing all these things because I I love Him and want to do all these things. They were all good things. But through through writing these books and through um, getting sick and spending so much time just with Him alone in the house sick, 
I realized I had become really hard on myself again. And now I give myself way more grace. If I'm tired, I quit. If I can't do it, I say I can't. If I need to write a novel and I know I only have enough energy for the novel, I, can't, I don't do anything else. So I'm way easier on myself. I realize my limitations more. I give myself more grace. I, get, I think I give all my kids more grace. I give my husband more grace. Uh, I definitely have been giving um, you know, people around me, fellow sinners, more grace. Um, so I, overall, it's been a good thing for me. Would I want to be sick? Would I pick it? Nope. <laughs> One last question. Who's your favorite son-in-law? That's easy. It's you, <laughs> the so, only son-in-law I have. Katie, and don't think you're knocking me off that with anybody you bring home. Yeah, he, I don't know. Whoever she marries might give you a run for your money. We'll have to wait and see. You're definitely my favorite son-in-law. Thank you for being on the podcast. Oh, I'm thrilled. Thank you for and having please, me. Everybody, everybody, run out. Get we can get no longer alone anywhere, right? Books, anywhere, are Amazon. Same with iBooks, the other two. Fall in a refuge anywhere and. Connect with uh, my mother-in-law on social media. She will friend you. She will talk with you. She's engaging and follow her stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. And please do check out No Longer Alone, Refuge and Fallen. Great books. And I'm not just saying that because Melinda Inman is my mother-in-law. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, fare thee well.